Welcome to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline, and today we are talking about the dark side of cub petting. So, cub petting is a practice that involves uh, using baby animals such as lion and tiger cubs as photo props for paying customers. So, this may seem cute in the moment, but the reality is there is a darker side that can occur in this industry that involves deception and animal cruelty. So, this is something that not many people know about. And because of this reason, I think it's important that we talk about it. And we'll be talking about it today with today's guest, Lauren. So, Lauren, thank you for coming on the show and welcome to the Conservation Trap. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no worries. So, let's get stuck into an intro. So, why don't you tell the podcast a wee bit about who you are and what you do? Okay. Um, so, I'm Lauren. I'm from the UK. I'm 30 years old. And I am a qualified veterinary nurse, so I've been working with animals um, since uh, 2008 now and qualified since 2012. Um, and since then, I've been on various volunteering trips, etc., and uh, finished a zoology diploma. And I have just finished my first year of my bachelor's degree in international wildlife biology. Mm -hmm. um, so I got my first year results today, actually. So celebration time <laughs> celebration time yeah yeah i'll celebrate for you tonight <laughs> thank you so cub petting is the theme of today so what is cub petting okay so cub petting is um as you described earlier the practice of using uh baby animals and it's said it's cub petting so it's normally animals that refer to as cubs as they're young um, so your tigers, lions, cheetahs, um, all that kind of stuff, leopards occasionally. Um, but the baby like petting industry is actually involving other species now as well, orangutans, chimps, things like this. So there's a dark side to petting baby animals, as it were, but cub petting is kind of the, the name that we're giving it at the moment. Okay, so not specifically just cubs, just generally baby animals. Yeah, I mean, my um, focus today is going to be on cubs because it's about cats, um, but it is happening with other species of baby animals as well. Mm -hmm. So um, what got you passionate about this particular topic? Because when um, we started chatting on Instagram, this was obviously something that you're very passionate about. So <laughs> what's the reasoning yeah, behind that? Please talk to me about this. <laughs> um so I've always been interested in big cats. When I was young, I always used to watch, um, we had a program here in the UK called Big Cat Diaries and I would run home from school in time to watch Big Cat Diaries. Um, and I've just followed big cats and I've just always had an interest and I'm not really sure why the cats, but you know, I'm a vet nurse now, so all animals are great to me. Um, and then uh, in 2014, I visited South Africa and I worked with um, cheetah cubs um, and came home, educated myself about um, more big cat topics um, and came across this cub petting industry and the links to canned hunting. Um, and because I love the cats, I love big cats, um, it's something I feel deeply passionate about now. So. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned you were working in South Africa. So you weren't aware of this kind of industry while you're there. It was when you came back to the UK. 
Um, it was kind of on the outskirts of my awareness. I knew that cubs were being used as props and abused, um, but not, but you know, it wasn't at the forefront of my awareness. Um, and so I went to South Africa. I worked with cheetahs and had a really good time um, and came home and continued to just do do that research. So no, I wasn't wasn't fully aware at the time. Mm-hmm. So is with car pinning because obviously um, you know we've, we've seen videos, we've read articles of the horrific things that can happen. Is there a place where, say for example, in a sanctuary where they rescue a cheetah? Is is there a acceptable cub petting, for example, in that environment? Is is there um, any example? I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So the cheetah cubs that I raised were not involved in. I'm going to speak about cantonting in a little while, but they were not involved. The organisation is not involved in cantonting, and that's mainly where the cub petting seems to be you know, be coming into. Um, so some would argue that the money raised from cub petting can go towards conservation programs. And as long as the cubs have good welfare, um, et cetera, et cetera, then, you know, it's all part of the bigger picture and that's okay. But the problem is, is when there's zero conservation effort and the money raised is just, you know, it's just going in someone's pocket and there's, there's nothing to get gain from um so some would argue that there is some conservation value and some would argue that there's absolutely zero conservation value um some the cub petting so the cheetah cubs i raised were ambassador cheetahs to be used either they were then sold onto um other cheetah facilities for breeding um to increase the cheetah population um or they would go to zoos etc and be used as ambassador animals um, so you could argue that there is conserva- conservation value there. Um, the funds that were raised from that particular organization went into a predator control livestock, like a livestock program. So it's non-lethal predator control. Mm-hmm. So the money went to fund a dog breeding program and the dogs were then, uh, allocated to farms and the farmers signed a contract that said, um, we're not going to shoot any cheetahs or um, big cats. The, the the livestock guard dog, as it were, protects them. They got guard dog for free, and after that, they would take on the guard dog. And it has like a really really high success rate. So then, some would argue, yes, that money raised from you meeting those cubs has gone to conservation efforts. Mm. I mean, I guess people could make many different arguments to justify their action. And, um, yeah, it seems like there's no black and white solutions to these conservational issues, which in turn makes it easy to make arguments that may not be genuine. You know, the, you know, the, the objective maybe is, is to make money, but they're like, but we also contribute to conservation, you know, it's, or if you see a legit, um, organization carrying this out and you say, well, why can't we? You know, it's like, well, they're allowed to do it, so why can't we? And so when there's a grey area, there's always, um, like, the... 
there's always it's always open to abuse if there's a gray area and it's always susceptible to abuse when there's money involved um with these solutions money is obviously critical and it's practical to consider money in um any pursuit that we do um, including conservation which is why i'm a believer in ecotourism when it's done correctly but um, arguments for um, say trophy hunting and that kind of stuff in theory i guess you could um, justify it and you can make an argument for it but in practice i feel you may be genuine but your next door neighbor may not and as soon as there's money involved you know someone will try and cheat the system in order to make an extra buck and yeah that's the that that is the that is the problem i think is setting that precedent once you set it and say okay this is okay then you're leaving yourself open for people that aren't trying to do the the right thing to take advantage of it so very complex very very complex um so okay so the unethical practices so can we what are the unethical why is it unethical cub petting in many um, situations like what are the practices that happen and and why is it bad um so in order for there to be cubs to pets there needs to have been a big cat that has been bred and then those cubs need to be removed from mum and that's unnatural it's you know it's not what would happen in the wild um so those these cubs are often removed at like one to three days old ten days old taken away and then they're hand reared um and then they're they're bottle fed or whatever and you can go and pay to bottle feed these things in sanctuaries around the world um so that's one of the things it's unethical to take baby animals from their mums without you know, unless there's an actual medical reason. Um, so it can happen in breeding facilities. Um, if a particular cub is not not doing so well, it can be removed and, you know, treated with veterinary care. Um, in the wild, they would just they would just die, obviously. But mm-hmm. if we're trying to increase numbers, they'll be taken away. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the unethical part taking them away from mom there's welfare concerns then if they're taken away from mom they're not getting um the correct milk from mom um and then when they're being handled if they're being bottle fed by other people that don't know what they're doing so if you're paying for this you can bottle feed them wrong they're at risk of then aspirating milk and then they need veterinary treatment so it just kind of snowballs really as soon as you take cub away from mom you're just opening it up to you know, welfare problems. Yeah, yeah. And the emotional trauma that mum has to go through as well is, you know, you have to separate them and then they can go for days being really, really stressed by that. And I think that's something that not many people, I guess, even think about this idea that uh, non-human animals can have that emotional connection. You know, if, yeah. if, if a tiger mother is separated from her cub that is that impacts her and the cub in a negative way and yeah i think there needs to be more awareness around the fact that that actually happens because i think if more humans understood that properly 
um, they would be more um, empathetic towards these kind of things because I think at the moment there's probably a disconnect between, um, you know, us humans and our emotions and, and the animal kingdom. It's, it's like we feel this and they don't, but it's, yeah, it, there's a lot of overlap there. Yeah, I mean, they they can they bleed the same, they suffer the same, you know, they can feel pain. So their trauma is also just as as deep. And, um, you know, I might sound like an animal rights person when I say this, but, you know, they do feel things the same way we do. And to disregard that is um, just for our personal gain is just, you know, unethical. It's, you know, it's not normal for these animals to go through this, this procedure mm-hmm. um so yeah it is you know and the the public definitely don't know that this happens they just think oh well they've they've not been well or mums you know refused to to have them or yeah. mums died and they've fed all these lies when actually they are just separated and, and taken by us so yeah and it's it is an ignorance thing from the the tourist perspective like they they don't know what they're getting themselves into. All they're doing is listening to this, you know, this business and they're telling a, you know, a convincing story and, yeah. you know, what else are they supposed to do? They can't, they can't mind read unless they're, unless they're, you know, educated in the topic that they just are not going to know. So yeah, which is why it's important yeah. to spread the word. And, and so more people do know because once they know they, wouldn't support it like humans across the border are you know a good people they they want to be supporting yeah, good causes right good yeah, yeah. We, we want to be supporting good causes and for the most part we don't um without even realizing it. it's it's not like a conscious effort to support bad causes it's just that you're you're not aware that you're contributing to that hmm yeah i'm, I'm a big believer in uh yeah from a fundamental perspective that we're all general where we are inherently good and we are trying to do the good thing it's just that we don't always know yeah. what that looks like okay so yeah i would i would agree we, we mm. get it wrong sometimes yeah yes the intention is probably always there it's just that intention doesn't map to reality all the time i mean it really yeah. does it really does <laughs> so cut petting we kind of, I guess, talked about it before, but why do you think it exists in the first place? Money or conservation for some parties? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, so the way I see it, there's kind of two types of cub petting. There is the cub petting and raising that happens um, where volunteers go and they raise cubs. And, th- and that is linked to the canned hunting industry, will I, which we I will come on to. And then there's just the cub petting from a, this happens in sanctuaries or, and this is the one that tends to be over all over Instagram, is like you can go and feed these baby tigers and they're not necessarily in, in zoos, more like kind of places that pass themselves off as rescues or sanctuaries. Um, and this often happens in there's um, a few places in South America. There's a few places over in like the Middle East, and I'm sure there's definitely places in in Europe and this that and the other way you can pay to do this. And it's kind of just a one-time thing. Um, but then the other side is there's volunteers going to raise cubs 
that have been separated and they think that's poor conservation. So the reason why it's there is, yeah, is, is to make money. I, either way, it's to make money. It doesn't matter what the end goal is, whether the money is going to, towards the hand hunting industry or whether it's going back into these like zoo-like or sanctuary facilities as they make all themselves. Um, but yeah, it is money because everyone's like, well, I want my picture with a tiger or a, mm. a lion cub or a cheetah cub. So considering those two types, say. Um, That's how I see it, but... Um, do you think there is a place where you can cup it like ethically, let's say at a sanctuary that's they haven't bred them because that's obviously a very critical part, but let's say they've rescued them and through the process of rehabilitating them, um, volunteers there. Yeah, I guess cupheading you can look the cupheading by definition is you're, you're paying someone to come and take a photo. I think that's the issue, but the actual petting of them is isn't the issue as such it's it's the like um, like if well, you're if you're rehabilitating them from a sanctuary perspective yeah. yeah that's what i'm so i have rehabilitated um animals of all types of species and stuff and you have to handle them at some point when they're young you know they have to be bottle fed or whatever but the genuine um rehabilitation um facilities or sanctuaries or whatever have what you call dehumanization protocols. So um, so I've worked in Malawi and I helped raise um, orphan vervet monkeys. And monkeys, or, you know, primates, they can bond really easily to humans that are feeding them. And so we would have protocols in place that stopped those bonds from happening. And then when they're old enough, they could be bonded to the young monkeys or they would get a surrogate mum and then reintroduce to a troop. Mm -hmm. So there is a point where obviously rescue cubs or um, confiscated pubs that cubs have been, that have been poached or whatever do have to be rehabilitated. Um, but this is going to be done by experts, by fully trained staff um, at these facilities. So that wouldn't be classed as cub petting and it's yeah. not necessarily um, – you know, that isn't all over social media. People responsibly post about those that type of thing. So the people that are, you know, raising these cubs that have been rescued or taken from the poaching trade or whatever, mm -hmm. yes, they have a brilliant job. They get to raise cheetah cubs or lion cubs or whatever, but they are not posting about it and they're not paying to, to do that. They're, that's just their job and they have a really awesome job. Um, so they're you know, if they do post about it, they're posting responsibly with an educational message. And mm. so, yeah. The posting responsibly part, I find... Yeah, posting on social media, which I may not have explained. Yeah, because let's say uh -huh. you are someone that's doing the right thing. You're, you're going by the book, everything, you're, you know, fully qualified. You're not you're not posting any photos with the tourists with the cub. It's purely from like a rescue rehab release perspective, mm -hmm. but you take a photo and you, in the caption, it's all kind of um, describing, you know, the science behind it and the reasoning behind it. You send it out to the gram. <laughs> Your intention doesn't always map 
the um, perception of that photo or the interpretation. So how, like, can you do a responsible photos about this kind of stuff? Because if you're taking um, a photo with a person and a cub, that can be just interpreted in so many different ways and, you know, good and bad. Does the good out- outweigh yeah, the bad or I does guess- the bad outweigh the good? Um, well, a lot of the places that um, do this rehabilitation work, etc., um, have policies that you just don't post. Yeah. You don't take, you don't post selfies, as it were. So I've worked in places where it's like you can take pictures, you can take pictures of each other, but you're not to post selfies and you're not to post the pictures of each other. And therefore, the, I mean, people break the rules all the time, but if you are found to do so, you can be asked to leave the facilities. So you can post pictures of the animals, but as long as you're not with them, that that's kind of the rule that has down, like made I sure the volunteers important. that are in, Yeah, the, so the volunteers that are in legit places have got a strict set of rules, and if they follow them, those places are then not perpetuating a cub petting industry. Not only cub petting, but pet trade. Yeah, um, but it, just general exotic or wildlife pet trade. Yeah, because you know a consumer watching that on on their phone, they could see, okay, I want to pet that cheetah too. Or if they've got a lot of money, they'll be like, this is cool. If I buy this and have one of these of my own, I'm going to get a lot of <laughs> lot more likes and follows on Instagram. So it's. Yeah, I think the important issue there is the photo with the animal and the person together in the same frame. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. because people can visualize themselves in that position and, yeah, it, that's when it becomes dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it is about people wanting to – we have to touch something. We have to be like, well, I want to know how that feels or I want to know what that is. And humans don't just want to leave things alone, and that—that's a shame. So, I think with definitely. this is this part as well. I don't even think it's more or less them wanting to touch it. It's it's that through touching it and taking a photo of it, they will get more attention from their friends. Like it's it's not. I don't think it's like a genuine curiosity a lot of the time. For mm. um, it, it's like I want to take a photo because people will think that what I'm doing is cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, you're right. It's turned into more of how can I get more likes or this looks cool and no one's reading any of the comments anymore or anything or your Mm. caption. This is educational because it's just not the case. And I'm all for, um, like there's a lot of things that are cool at the moment, which, um, are good for the environment. Like there's, you know, the trend with, you know, not using single-use plastics. A lot of the people that get on that bandwagon, like to be honest, a lot of them are doing it just because it's a cool thing to do, and that's great. I love that. I love. I love that there, there can be a trend that um, inspires people that to get on board. Yeah. And as a byproduct, you know, the planet is better off. But it's um, yeah. But we need to be aware of why people get on that. Like this coolness factor is really important. Like making conservation cool making kind of kindness cool compassion cool all that kind of stuff you need to make it cool because that's what people are attracted to now especially on this social media era that we're in and 
yeah it, it it can be cool and it can be good but it can be cool and it can be bad for these animals it could be bad for these cubs so yeah, yeah I'm, I'm really really intrigued about those kind of questions this this like offline online thing and how it's just distorting everything yeah so the internet's been great but it's also you know really detrimental for some things um you know it's new ways the you know people have been selling animal body parts via facebook and so facebook wasn't invented for any of that stuff and yet here it is being abused by people to find another way around the system so that they can do something that's going to make them money so um but then equally facebook is also good at spreading awareness so if more and more people post responsibly then we're going to get somewhere but it's when we find you know people just aren't posting responsibly or they're sharing things with with no kind of caption to it at all and i think that's probably the worst there's you're sharing it because you want to raise awareness but then they, if there's no caption people think you're sharing it because it's okay to share and mm. but then even on the flip side of that because of our diminishing attention spans sometimes we need to condense our message into meme format so no one has to read a caption yeah exactly you know i can write my instagram is i try to be as educational as possible if i post any animal photographs if i post stuff from work like um may was veterinary awareness month and i posted um post about two vet nurses that i've worked with in south africa huge long captions and they were with um animals and I wondered, I wondered how many people had read the caption and liked it because it was a really cool thing that these people were doing or that they saw that it was a really cool animal and they just gave it a like. So it's hard to tell. Yeah, it is. It is hard to tell. Um, I think I think it's important to do both. Like on social media, if you're trying to spread awareness, you need to cater to the people that will react in two seconds. But then you also want to react to, um, you want to respond to the people that are genuinely curious and would like like a long, like a lengthy caption describing what this actually is. So you kind of yeah. have to cater to both sides. So if, yeah. if you, if the objective is to spread the message. Yeah. It's freaking crazy. This is a, so crazy. <laughs> but I, I think, yeah social media can obviously be used uh, in bad ways but i think it can be used um you know for good as well equally yeah. you know there's there's no i don't think social media is the devil um <laughs> it's all it is is a mirror of us as human beings it's, it, it doesn't post anything by itself it's it just it posts what people tell it to post yeah it's about the information that we give it so yeah, so it's. I don't think it's very helpful to to blame Instagram. It's it's the humans that are creating the content and spreading the content. So hmm. I'll just add to that, that point. So yes. I don't know whether um, you have seen on Instagram, but they have started giving you warnings now. Um, so if you type in the hashtag cub petting before it lets you see the pictures, it says warning. There may be. Um, images of animal abuse on here 
which That's is good. a step in the right direction. You know, or Tiger Selfie, that now comes up with that, um, whatever it says, warning animal uh, images of animal abuse if you type in Tiger Selfie. Yeah. So if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to post mine, and then you go to look for other images and it says that, you're like, oh, yeah, that is good. Okay. Maybe this isn't okay for me to do, or I shouldn't have done it. So mm -hmm. I did notice that um, when I was posting a photo on, on not my personal page, but one of my other wildlife pages, but it kind of shook me because it wasn't, I wasn't trying to use the hashtag tiger selfie or cub petting. The hashtag was orangutan. And there was a warning, yeah. there was a warning message wow. saying purely orangutan. I could use orangutans but not orangutan singular that was depressing i was like that is not cool yeah that means there must be enough abusive photos on there yeah and uh, there's definitely orangutans being dressed up and being posed with in the middle east i know for sure yeah um, yeah like a few of the pages that i run like i i not managing them at the moment because I'm focusing on this podcast and my personal page, but in the past I was managing quite a few different wildlife pages specific to each animal. And when I was curating content for these pages, say gorilla, orangutan or lion or cheetah, you search up the hashtag to find post to repost. And, you know, especially with gorillas and chimpanzees, the vast majority of the feed was just um, these animals in an unnatural environment, like, with nappies on or clothes or being bathed and it was so depressing like on my pages it was it's just the animals in their natural environment or or at a sanctuary yeah. um but when you're trying to find content to post it's just you're just bombarded with um yeah these animals in the unnatural environment and that's very dangerous when people see that yeah yeah because they just normalize it and then think it's okay and it just isn't <laughs> and they're almost trying to humanize them like yeah like and this we, chimpanzee well, we is like a human because it's riding a skateboard or it's in a shower shampooing my hair like it's oh you saw that one the other day <laughs> yeah i did see that one i did post yeah, I saw. recently about um yeah these these um animal influences with millions of followers and like i have no doubt they're in that they are animal lovers and they're in they probably do raise money for conservation i don't know i don't know what they do but i do know that just based off reading their comments alone that they're encouraging a lot of people to buy these pets for their own so yeah. dis despite your intentions being genuine that's irrelevant the point is that you're feeding this industry and the money that you're raising is only going to be used to combat the pet industry that you're fueling. Yeah. It's just, it's just counterproductive. Yeah. hundred percent. And these animals yeah. are not easy to keep either. You know, their effort, you can't just, you know, they're not domesticated. You can't just have a, one of my big things at the moment is like, servals so they're an african wildcat medium size smaller than a cheetah bigger than your domestic cat um yeah. and people are owning servals and breeding them and selling them and i'm like these cats can go through kilos of meat mm. you know i i mean i don't even know because i've never owned a serval 
but kilos of meats per week, you know, and there's just effort. So yes, it might be cute, but their nails, you know, they're likely to be unpredictable. Their nails will scratch everything that you own. Like they're just going to be hard work regardless of how cute they are. So it, just out of a pure like effort they, point of view, it's just, they're just a mission to own. So, yeah, I mean, I love animals and I still don't have any of my own pets because I just don't have the time and facilities to have one yet. And I will never own one until I do. So, and I'm 30 and I'm a vet nurse. And I'm just like, no, not until it's right, because I want to do it right. So, you know, if you want to get a tiger, which you can legally own in America or in the UK, or probably even Australia, I don't have the numbers for that, but, um, you know, you have to have a certain size area in your garden. You have to be able to provide it with the meat that it needs. And you can't go in with it because you're at risk of dying. So I don't know what enjoyment you would get out of that. Ego, um, ego boost status. Yeah, and it costs you loads of money. So yeah, it just all seems crazy to me. And the thing is, they may not be aware of that. They they buy this um, cat and realize it's a lot of hard work. And then they probably would, you know, just, many will be like, oh, shit, this is hard work. I'm just going to sell it off or I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like there is also also a risk of once you have that pet, caring for it. And if you've realized that these exotic pets are a lot more work than you anticipated, then there's also a risk of that animal's well-being decreasing as well as a consequence. Hmm. Yeah, so their welfare is impacted things and a lot of the rules that are in place for you to be able to own these things so in the uk you need a dangerous wild animal license and you can basically own a wolf a tiger a lion really um and yeah yeah so you need a, a dwa and that means you have to have x amount of space per whatever species species it is um but a lot of those regulations are around keeping the public safe from that animal exactly what that animal needs Mm -hmm. so it has to be you know securely confined or whatever um but there is actual minimal effort gone into the legislation to ensure that that animal is actually you know its welfare needs are kept and it and that the person owning this animal actually knows anything about the species is more on keeping the public safe and yes the public should be safe but we should also be putting animal welfare first or just not having these i don't think you should be able to own these animals at all but if you're going to make it that you can at least put their welfare at the top of the list too so So on that point so you don't think we should be owning them at all what's your reasoning behind that um their welfare yeah so yeah if we you know these are wild animals and as the title suggests i believe that they should be wild they're of no conservation value in someone's um back garden at all um they they 
you can't get any enjoyment out of owning this animal because you can't bond to it if it's that dangerous. Um, they should be wild. And if you don't know anything about these species, then you can't provide for it appropriately. Can you provide veterinary care? You know, can you provide the right diet? Can you provide the right habitat? No, because your back garden isn't, you know, the African plains or the Indian forest or whatever, you know, you just cannot replicate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm on the same page. I th for me, it boils down to kind of well-being or welfare or quality of life. So our objective as sentient beings, as a collective, should be to um, act in a way that doesn't unnecessarily compromise someone else's quality of life. So if you're taking a pet out of the wild and keeping or taking an animal out of the wild and keeping it as a pet, their quality of life is decreased because a they their environment is smaller and they can't roam their emotions they can't express themselves fully the mental state decreases because it's an environment that they're unfamiliar with health concerns physical concerns their quality of life is decreased and and i think it's important when we say we shouldn't do this to kind of why why shouldn't we because a lot of people just be like why not you know, why can't I have this pet? Because of this reason. And yeah, yeah, that's what I boil everything down to. Not just pets, but everything is, are you increasing the collective well-being or are you decreasing it? And yeah, keep taking a chimp out of the wild and keeping it a, as a pet for the most part is, is um, yeah, not doing that. It's decreasing their quality of life. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. But then yeah. people would argue. Some people would argue that oh. their their quality of life may increase if they have a pet because they love animals. But some people can say that. Be like, okay, what about my quality of life? I'm going to be way more happy if I have a tiger as a pet. It's going to be so cool. But then yeah. I kind of look at the bigger picture. Like you're one person. And you, you can't consider just your individual um, quality of life. You need to consider the quality of, of life as a collective. And the suffering from that tiger is outweighs, is you know disproportionate to the, the small amount of gain that you get from having it. Yeah. Yeah. That's how that's how I kind of process everything. I try and like quantify it a bit and like Yes, you may get a small amount of gain, pleasure from having this tiger, but he's the tiger's getting a lot more pain than your pleasure. And therefore, it's net negative. Therefore, it's bad. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that makes sense to me. You're in you're in a negative, so it's, it's, you know, don't do it. And if that's how you can base all your decisions, then that's actually a fairly good way of looking at things. Mm. Well, I butted you in before. What were you about to say? Um, I can't remember now. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. <clears throat> so you mentioned um, that this industry affects more than just cats and lions. Can you briefly touch on some other animals that this is kind of commonly uh, affecting at the moment, like around the world for tourists, because people are traveling the world at an increasingly high rate. 
what yeah. animals should they so, be looking out for? So you can you can basically pay to handle almost any kind of wild animal it seems. Um, you know, there's there's you've got your lions and your tigers, and um, you don't really see it happen to leopards as much as the lions and the tigers. Um, and there's a lot of um, cheetahs in the Middle East that are that are owned, and you can meet a lot of cheetahs in zoos. And um, then there's the primates as well. So, and it's all when they're babies because they're just not da- not as dangerous when they're they're young. And then as soon as they get too big, they go wherever that they go to. But yeah, the orangutans, chimps. Um, I don't think I've seen any gorillas actually, but you know, I'm sure somebody's doing this. Um, what other things? I can't think off the top of my head, but it's main it's mainly cats and like a few primates that I've seen a lot of. Um, it's mainly the big cats that you see because it is cub petting, um, and I think this all started with you know these tigers that you could go and see in um, Asia, um, you know, tiger selfies, and they had lots of young tigers that you could see, and a lot of the tigers were drugged, which is another one of the ethical reasons why you shouldn't be um, handling these animals. You know, some of them are drugged just for you to do this, and even as babies, that that can be the case. Um, But yeah, I would say it's mainly primates and mainly big cat species. Okay. But it can exist, I guess, with any with any animal. Yeah, because you can go to your local reptile house or zoo or whatever, and they'll let you hold a snake, and you don't necessarily have to pay for that experience. But you can know you can have the snake draped round you for a photograph, or and that happens in lots of zoos and things. So whether you want to class that as the same because they don't necessarily undergo the taken away from their mothers or, um, you know, they're not being forced to be fed by tourists or whatever, but they're still being taken from their environment and placed on a human for a photo and then put back in there. Say, say it is a a big Python, then they're put back into their thing, Mm -hmm. um, just for you to, to have a photo. And, you know, it's bad enough that these animals aren't wild, but then, you know, you're not giving them a choice. You're taking them away from whatever they're doing and then forcing them to interact with humans. So it can be any animal, I guess. And I guess from a business perspective, they're not just going to choose any animal. They're going to choose the animal that they feel would get the most customers, right? Yeah, which is why snakes are a big one because so many people are, are... scared of snakes and so they're like well if we we offer that you can hold a snake people are almost going to see it as a challenge and oh my god i held a snake type thing so then it draws people in yeah and so that is one way to draw them in and and i was reading an article the other day um talking about the harry potter effect or um, and I was saying how after the Harry Potter movie, there was like a like a massive surge in, you know, the owls. I don't know, I don't even remember that movie too well, but 
the owl in that movie there was a yeah, surge and like so yeah this this idea of these animals that kind of get to the celebrity status like this owl and harry potter or you know these animals on these influencer pages mm. or you know them well, could... the same thing happened with um you know big breed wolfy looking dogs with game of thrones you know everybody yes. wants one so yeah it's it's the animals that are either on trend at the moment because of whatever film has come out or yeah or it's just the ones that are deemed the the scariest or the the cutest i guess because you know it's rare that you can get hold of these animals or people are afraid of them and they, they use it to draw people in so you know there's you can basically handle so many different species of animals now and the these animals don't get a choice in that matter and that's why it's an animal welfare concern because even though you can say it has the right environment it has the right food it gets veterinary treatment that you can say that's all well and good, but if it doesn't have choice, you still are not providing correct animal welfare because you have to give animals a choice because otherwise you're just forcing them interact interact forcing them into interaction. Hmm. So the choice is a big one. It's a big thing in animal welfare at the moment is does this animal have a choice? Mm-hmm. So even in my work as a vet nurse, you know, these animals come into the, the veterinary practice and they're scared or whatever, and I'm providing them with the right medications and the right size kennel and the nice bed. But if it's scared and I'm constantly going into it, it's like it's not choosing for me to go in and, and you know, fuss it. And it, am I making it feel worse? Am I scaring it more? Or would it rather just be left alone? So. I'm starting to think about this choice thing more and more with even my job. And even though I know I'm doing the right thing for these animals, I'm like, does it want me to go into its kennel and sit with it? Or am I making it more stressed? So, you know, it's a really fine line, but definitely with these animal interactions, these animals are taken from whatever, you know, holding place that they're in if they're in a reptile home or they're in a vivarium or they're in a um, enclosure they're taken from it and then they're forced onto a tourist it's like that it doesn't have a choice so is it enjoying itself is it not is it cute if it's stressed it's not it's not it's not cute or it's not nice for that animal Mm -hmm. yeah these are all things that need to be um considered hundred percent and i think we're talking about a lot more these days which is good yeah i mean i I definitely see like even my on my instagram feed i I see a lot more content but that's obviously because instagram believes that i enjoy that content but like even outside of like in the real world my family friends just random people on the street hearing them talk about not so much cub petting but you know, veganism and animal rights and and all these things, which um, the focus is beyond kind of what our wants and needs are. Yeah. Which is probably like a big step 
I don't know how. Um... It's it's a huge step. It's re- it's a really cool step that things are going in that direction. Um, I'm vegan myself, so that fits with my vet nursing. Like I, I swore that I would protect all animals and help all animals, and therefore the next natural step for me is veganism. Um, but just you know, not not necessarily veganism, but just people are having these conversations more and more and more, and it's a way. It's a huge step. And obviously, as an animal lover, I'm thinking, yes, this is awesome. We're going in the right direction and we're starting to think about things as, or animals as more individuals rather than just a collective of animals. It's like, well, does this particular animal, how does he feel about that situation? Or even now you can buy dog harnesses that say anxious on them or approach me slowly to even dog walkers in the park and I just think that's really cool and it's just these small steps that Mm. more and more people are thinking about it Mm. and just having a consideration for the bigger picture as well Mm. I I think we're more and more being concerned with um, kind of how can the world be better as opposed to just how can my life be better and I was was, was watching an interview actually it was quite a uh, old and fierce about 15 years 10 years ago but i was watching on youtube and it was um richard dawkins and jane goodall richard. uh jane goodall sir david Attenborough, and someone else forgot but there was like a bunch of superstars and they were talking about this idea that yeah only this is like kind of the first time in human history where we're beginning to um where our actions are being informed by wanting to increase like the quality of life for everyone. Like we are making conscious decisions to um, make the world a better place. Like our personal gain is, is kind of is secondary. So it's this like altruistic kind of um, mindset, which Richard was saying how this is, maybe like the first time in history where we're kind of adopting that mindset where we're like being responsible where we're like at this point where we were obviously very intelligent and we're trying to use that intelligent not to um obviously people using that for corruption and, and money and greed but there's a lot of us that are trying to use that to for all these other um admiral well you know good reasons yeah, I need to watch it. I, I'll, I'll link yeah. it somewhere. But it was just a fascinating talk, like that idea that this is like the first time maybe where, where this this mindset shift is happening. Yeah. And I guess it, it probably comes out well, of maybe like... I'll, a, I'll give it a watch. Hey? I said I'll have to find it and watch it. Yeah, it was, re- yeah, it was pretty sure it was like 15 years ago, but it was a really, really good chat. Um. Is, but I feel like it's almost come out of necessity. Like this is a mindset that we're adopting because um, we have no choice. Yeah. Not 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 either animal rights, but also like, you know the environment and, and that stuff and, and our. Um, yeah, human rights, the environment, and animal rights. It's all it's all linked. So we have to be thinking about it as a collective, as opposed to separate entities now as well. Mm-hmm. So going back to cupheading, um, 
one more question on that and then we'll link it to kind of the um the canned hunting as well so these um cubs that have been involved in this cub petting can they be released back into the wild um so by having this many lions breeding within the same numbers you then get a population of lions that may then have um, genetic issues or immune immune problems and so then if they were to be reintroduced to the wild population they're actually going to cause a risk to the wild population as opposed to adding to a wild population mm-hmm. so they're two separate populations that that can't be integrated essentially and so therefore they don't have a conservation value because they can't be released and it's not increasing the number of wild lion populations yeah, yeah which is a, obviously important so the the number that total population number can often be like misleading like because it can be used they can say that there's 10 an additional 10,000 lions but they're habituated and they can't be re- rewilded again and yeah. therefore they have minimal conservation value in that sense Hmm. Yeah. Can you can you go over those um, breeding numbers again? That's pretty extreme. Yeah, eight. Uh, the last estimate, according to um, the Blood Lions um, campaign, mm-hmm. so um, is about eight thousand to twelve thousand lions in captivity when they last did an estimate, and mm-hmm. I think Blood Lions came out in two thousand and fifteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something we can so, watch online or do we have to download? Um, you can watch it on their website. I think Blood Lions, um, I think I have it open here. So let me just check for you. Bloodlions.org. Bloodlions.org. Yeah. Hmm. 2015 came out. I think that's when I watched it. So those numbers, although it's from their website, so it's probably updated. Mm-hmm. Um, so oh, we can go gonna... on there and check it out yeah you can go on there and check it out I'm just getting my screen back again here we go I don't know what's happened now let's get rid of this <laughs> there we go um, yes 8,000 to 12,000 um, is the estimated amount yeah so um, their other conservation argument is that if hunters are hunting a captive population, then they're not affecting the wild population of lions. But just because they're not affecting the wild population doesn't mean that what they're doing is is right or... Yeah. If but it's that, adding, that is, yeah, that is one of the arguments, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things that they'll say is like, well, we're not, you're, the hunters are not hunting wild, wild lions, but it... That's not true because there's still true hunters, as some hunters see it, are still hunting wild lions. So it's not taking away from the hunting of wild lions. We're just killing more lions in a different setting. And feeding an industry, you know, you're adding more money to an industry, fueling it. Yeah. Which would inspire probably more people to get on board because they feel like they can earn more money from it. Mm. And with canned hunting, it's made easy for you. So you can go online from 
I could do it here. I could sit, I'm in Jersey at the moment in the Channel Islands. I could go online. I could find an organization that looks legit. I could find a lion that I wanted to shoot. I could have a lioness or a, a male lion. Uh, male lions cost more. I could pick that and I could book my trip from this sofa and I could fly to South Africa and I could do that within three or four days and I could come home. It's like a package deal. <laughs> that is ridiculous. <sighs> like, I feel like that is just because it's so quick. It's just like a like an ego boost. Like I don't like hunting. Like you, for a lot of hunters, it's like a. It's not like a moment. It's the whole journey. It might be like a, a few days or. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not it's, like the the the, the trophy, like the kill, is necessarily what they enjoy. It's it's blah blah blah. It's the hunt. Yeah. It's, yeah, but this um, is just removes that it's clinical clinical it's, that's a good way to describe it yeah it's just booked it pack your bags go they show you lion they'll show you rounds um they they do a shooting like session with you to ensure that you're an okay shot mm-hmm. um and because obviously you want a kill shot because you don't want these lions to suffer but because this is so easy you get non- expert hunters going over and they're not necessarily making kill shots either and then the lion is shot again by your guide um in case you did it wrong Mm -hmm. and so then your lion might suffer it's not always dead straight away Mm -hmm. um so yeah it is clinical and um and then you finish up and they go and they have a they have a nice south african braai at the end of the day and then they they go home so the the link between um cub petting and canned hunting Mm -hmm. is it doesn't happen within the same kind of area does the cub petting usually have a partnership with a a separate kind of um canned Um, hunting reserve or so it can happen on the it normally happens in two different places because what is happening is is volunteers are being sold this come and hand rear lion cubs for conservation and so the volunteers go over they hand rear lion cubs what they think he's doing is amazing and they're told that these are either rescued from wild lions whose mother died or whatever Mm-hmm. Um, or they've been confiscated from the illegal wa- wildlife trade. They're then raised, and then when they're too big, they have bigger enclosures, bigger enclosures, and then they'll get moved. Um, and so if it were to happen in the same place, it would be very obvious to the volunteers what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. So it's often on two different sites, but run by the same same organizations, or it will be organizations that, like you say, are in partnership with each other. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it wouldn't do much for their cub rearing business if the volunteers could see what was actually happening. So deception. It's a deception game as well. Yeah, 100% deception. Hmm. 
and they yeah, that's they like taking advantage of volunteers tricking yeah. them into assisting with their business despite them being aware of it that's that's next that's next level yeah it's it's awful and so you'll have a few members of staff that are consistent and then all these volunteers or eco volunteers that think this is happening for a good cause and that they're contributing to lion conservation they're having the best time and they they volunteers are it's not volunteers they actually pay to go and do this um which is what happens with a lot of volunteer trips now is that you either pay a donation towards the cause or you pay to go mm-hmm. so it's not you know it's not paid jobs and it's not free you're paying them and so they get lots of money from this because they need they basically need bodies to raise lion cubs and they they're not really discriminative against who goes it's just they need bodies to raise the numbers of cubs that they have and then they go on and then they get sold either to a hunting facility or if it's the same organization they just get moved to their reserve so if someone out there is listening and is wanting to be an eco uh, volunteer in africa say what are some alternatives what are some things that uh, maybe they can look for um, as places to volunteer at and places perhaps to avoid from your experience um so places to avoid as a general rule now i would say anywhere that lets you interact with cubs as a volunteer is best just to avoid completely because you just don't know how legit it it is really unless you can see that it's a a wildlife rehabilitation center that is accredited by um the last the last one that i went to was accredited by born free and Mm -hmm. they're a you know they're a huge organization and you know they're legit. So you need to look out for the accreditations of not things like TripAdvisor, because TripAdvisor endorse all sorts of stuff. Um, <laughs> but, but like Born Free or, I mean, there's lots of other legitimate conservation organizations that will put their name on rehabilitation centers or that have donated to or whatever. Um, but if you can interact with cubs it's normally a no-go. Um, it's a good rule of thumb. It's a good rule of thumb. And if you are adamant that it's going to be okay, you need to ask questions like, where is my money going that I'm going to give to you? Where do the cubs go afterwards? How are they contributing to conservation? And if they are to be reared by people, how are they then dehumanized after that so when they get to a certain age what policies have you got in place to ensure that they become dehumanized rather than humanized to us because Because essentially they need to be dehumanized if they're going to go back to the wild okay so that's a critical point is being dehumanized if they have the potential to be uh, released back into the wild they need to go through that process so as i said before it's really, really difficult to release um, big cats back to the wild after this. So the chances of 
this being a legitimate thing are really small because there's not that many places that are doing this. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Can you can you um, name drop some reputable uh, organizations in, in this kind of space that kind of people can just check out just for more information, not, not necessarily specific to this, but just anything in general to do with this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so the cheetah conservation fund in Namibia Mm -hmm. is, um, reputable, ethical, um, and they do awesome things for cheetah conservation. Um, they, and they do take legitimate, um, cubs that have been confiscated from the pet trade. So that have been, destined to go to um, the Middle East, they've been poached or whatever, um, they do receive a lot of cubs and they do rehabilitate them and they do manage to release the cheetahs. Um, cheetahs don't seem to be as difficult as other big cats. Um, oh, they're all notoriously hard to do. Um, I also worked in Lilongwe Wildlife Center as well and this is in Malawi and this is has a lot of orphans during orphan season, um, a lot of primates, and they often see jackals, hyenas, uh, servals. Um, they did actually have two born-free rescue lions from the circus um, and that were living out the end of their lives because they couldn't be released because they'd been in the circus. Um, so those are two really reputable places. Um, I've been to the long way, haven't been to Namibia. Um, but yeah, if you're just looking for accreditations on these places or people that are transparent, if they're legit, they'll answer your question as to where the money is going and what happens to the animals after they're however old. So what questions can you ask those people? Um, where is my money going that I'm donating to you? Um, and they should be able to tell you. Um, or they they should be they shouldn't be sheepish or trying to hide the fact or be really vague. Um, what happens to the animals after they're however many months old, or they don't need to be on milk anymore? Um, and what are the release policies? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing, so that you know that they have them in place and they're not just like oh, well, we just, you know, send them to a sanctuary and that's really vague because you don't know what they mean by that or they just go to other facilities for ongoing care and yeah. you're like, well, what what could that be? So. Okay, so ask them questions. They should be able to answer them pretty decisively. Yeah, okay. yeah, 100%. I think that's a good tip um, because I think volunteering you know, is, is important and those experiences that you have, um, you know, can be life-changing and could lead you to a career wanting to conserve these species. So yeah, I think it's important. It's just that it's important that we choose to support the right places. Yeah. And it's exactly what happened to me. Like, um, the, the cubs that I was involved with, the organization I know isn't involved in the can hunting industry. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily say that I would go back and do it again because I've done more research and I, I don't necessarily feel like cub petting has to be part of a conservation prod. Like, I think we can, there are other ways. But because of that experience that I had, it has shaped my career 
and I'm, you know, I'm doing conservation work and I'm, I'm now studying a wildlife biology degree. And if it wasn't for that experience in 2014, I may not be on this, this path. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, and there's lots of people out there that have learned from whatever they've done and it steered them in one way or another. So. Hmm. Yeah. That's something that I would like to do as well. Some, some volunteering work. Um, yeah. Wouldn't mind doing something in Sumatra with some orangutans or Borneo. Yeah. Orangutans are kind of my thing at the moment. (laughs) Um, And there are lots of reputable places doing that. Um, yeah, so can be done. Yeah, I'm definitely going to reach out to a few places, maybe next year. Yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Um, so we are almost half an hour and a half in. Um, yeah. Are there any questions that you would like to discuss that we haven't covered yet? Um, I will just touch on the other part of canned hunting, mm-hmm. um, which is how the lines are kept, which there's all the, they're, they're kept when they're bigger is in quite small enclosures. Um, and there's often, because they're not in these natural prides or anything, there's often a lot of tension and a lot of fights and a lot of injuries as well. Mm-hmm. And because of the type of industry that this is, they're not necessarily getting the care for that either. So that's whole other welfare aspects of this industry. Um, and once the lion is dead, then the body doesn't just um, get burnt or buried. The trophy goes home with the hunter if they're allowed to import it into their country. But then the bones... Um, there's now, I'm sure you've heard of the tiger bone wine in Asia. What's happening now is that because tigers are on the decrease, lion bones are now being used instead of tiger bones. So there's a lot of illegal shipment of lion bones from the canned hunting industry now going into the tiger bone wine industry. So this is like... Disgusting multiple pronged as to why this is so awful because it's all linked together and one kind of fuels fuels the other so there's a demand for tiger bone wine and now that they know they can have lion bones there's always going to be someone out there that's willing to provide a product that is in demand so then this perpetuates this well I need to have more lions that are hunted so then I can use this as a I guess as a byproduct and then get that shipped and I can get some extra money. So again, coming back to the money. Yeah. Yeah. So what tiger bone wine? So it's actually a wine. Yeah. So, um, tiger skeletons are soaked in a vat of like vinegar and it's (laughs) drank as a wine. Um, and it takes, takes a few weeks. Um, the bones dissolve. And this is then processed, and then it is drank as as a wine in Asia for medicinal purposes. Yeah, or, you know, uh, you know, perceived medicinal purposes. Perceived to be um, like lucky or status symbol, or yeah, medicinal purposes, just like 
rhino horn or um, ivory or whatever, or pangolin scales. Um, so yeah, this this industry is like threefold awful, hood petting, the hunting, and then this use of the animal's body after that. And obviously some of that is also legal. You can legally export lion skeletons out of countries um okay so in, so you can break it down from like a business perspective they generate money from the cub petting stage one yep once they get too old for that they can sell it off to can hunting that's stage two yep. and then once oh, they... and there's a bit between that as well so the between uh cub and adult there's adolescents and they make money from you can walk with lions so then okay, there's, you can pay to walk with lions. Okay, so stage one, cub petting, make some money. Yep. Stage two, yep. when they're adolescents, they offer um, walking with the lions, get some yep. money. Stage three, when they're too yep. old for that, they sell it for canned hunting, make some money. And then yep. once the animal's shot dead, they sell the skeletons to make some tiger wine. Yeah, tiger bone wine. Tiger bone wine. Yeah. And then probably the skin probably goes somewhere else to be used as Mm -hmm. lion hide bag or I don't know. But yeah, the body parts are then sold. So that's an extra income. Do you think there's anyone involved in this industry that believes that they're helping conservation or do you think that's just a facade? Too difficult to say. Mm. When interviewed, they say, I believe it's helping conservation because hunters are hunting the lions here and not the wild ones. But that simply isn't true. Um, But I mean, people believe things that aren't true all the time. So (laughs) it's it's hard to say. Or, yeah, or we're increasing lion numbers. So we are helping. But those lions are of no value so again they could believe what they're saying but it doesn't make it mm. true so but i guess they they're not addressing the root cause for why um lions in the wild are decreasing anywhere so they may yeah. be assisting with numbers but the root issue isn't being addressed and therefore it's going to be always a, a problem yeah hmm Therefore, it's just a di- distraction at the moment. So conservationists are trying to battle the decline of lion numbers. But then we're also trying to, like, that's hard enough. But then there's this, oh, well, now you've opened up this industry. Now we have to fight this fight as well. So now we're splitting the money for conservation is going into campaigns against this and conservation. So it's difficult because if this wasn't happening or wasn't legal, all the money could go towards actual wild lion populations. Mm-hmm. So it's really tricky. Yeah. Mm, very complex issue. I think we'll, um, we'll link quite a few articles and that, that movie as well. Uh, somewhere yeah, on, on Instagram podcast. I sent you a photo in the Skype chat, which is the um, the life cycle of the canned hunting industry. So, I am just bringing or an it up. Image. I'm just bringing it up now. 
So life cycle of a candleine. Cubs are born in captivity, taken away from their mother. Cubs are bottle fed and looked after by paying volunteers and tourists. Young lions are used for walking expeditions with tourists. Once fully uh, grown, lions are killed in canned lion hunts. And then lions, lion skeletons are sold for the lion bone trade. And this is from bloodlions.org. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of different um, ways there to make money and mixing that with conservation. Just, I don't know, you leave yourself open for a lot of corruption. Doesn't seem like yeah. a good idea in the long term. 100%. So the competing of that side or raising is just pure deception, as is then the lion walking and then the hunting. Um, and you really have to, people really have to be deceived for this to happen. And it's such a shame because, like you said before, people inherently want to do good. So they're going there out of, you know, they're spending money on their flights and donations and then whatever they do while they're there because you no doubt they're going to want to go on safari after they finish volunteering so with all the good intentions they set off with their backpack and they're like mm -hmm. this is going to be amazing and it's just so sad because then if they ever find out then they're just completely deflated by by it and they'll you know going to kick themselves for however long um and it's just yeah just really really awful for people who genuinely think they're gonna, gonna do good so yeah oh hopefully through you know raising more awareness education people uh, you know can make more informed decisions about where they um yeah, choose to volunteer at and spend their tourist dollars yeah all right well, so. um anything else you want to touch on because i think we might have to end it up shortly no, that's everything. Just no, no. if you're going to go, just ask the right questions. Yeah. And um, I'll try and think of some more so that when you post this, um, you have like a good, solid few questions that you can advise people if you want. One thing I'm trying to do at the end of the podcast is get the guests to ask a question for the listeners to ponder on. Have you got a question? Um... I don't think I messaged you this one, but no. Yeah, I forgot to. Spring it on me. Um, there, the question could be um, the same that you asked me. Do you ever think that there is a an okay time to handle animals, young animals like that? Because um, lots of zoos offer meet a cheetah or hold a meerkat or whatever they do lots of this mm -hmm. um so the question would be after this conversation how do the viewers feel about that and do they feel that there's ever a right time to do that even if it's a legitimate place offering it for all the right reasons you know the money definitely is going to conservation mm -hmm. how do they now feel about it hmm. good question yeah, it's a good one to end on. And um, yeah, I think many people can answer that, that from different like, angles. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, it is a complex one. Okay. Mm. Well, we can marinate on that. Yeah, all the questions that involve money are always the hardest ones. Yeah, and 
and even if you're in, like we mentioned before, if your intention is well, it's doesn't mean you can inspire, like that could still inspire someone to interpret that differently and um, use it in a way that isn't good for, for the animals or for human beings in general. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's pretty, it's must be going on midnight for you, so. It is, but I'm not working till 11 a.m. tomorrow, so oh, it's sleeping. okay. Too easy. Yeah, man. <laughs> All right, well, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I will create a shared Dropbox folder and I can, once I've edited all, all these audio and, and video and podcasts, I can upload it there and you can check it out and whatever. But um, I think it'll be good as well um, if we have a team up in the future, we've got this shared folder that we can send each other files and information and I think it's a good idea yeah. just to set that up. Yeah, well, if you have a topic that you think that would be a good topic and you want to ask me if I know anything about it, then just let me know because um, if I can help, I will. So Awesome, I appreciate it. Okay. Yeah, if you do a pangolin episode, pangolin? I have worked with pangolins. Yes, have you? I have I, worked with I actually am, that is on the cards. There is someone that I was um, going to do it with. Um, but yeah, even if I do it with him, I can do another one. Yeah, yeah, pangolins is definitely one that I, w I would like to do a podcast on in the near future. So I'll hit you up on that one. Cool. Or just like wildlife trade in general is mm -hmm. a big deal for me. So, yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. Thank you. I will. Thank you very much. No Hope worries. You have a good day. You too. Enjoy your sleeping. I shall. <laughs> right. Chat to Bye. you next time. Bye. Bye.